1: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org events. The secret garden is always open now.
2: If
3: you look the right way... You can see that the whole world is a garden.
4: I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette.
1: This week, author Elizabeth Gilbert on why she went back in time and into the dirt for her latest novel about a polite botanist.
3: There's nothing that could make me possibly happier than to have to spend three years in various libraries all over the world trying to put together this story.
4: And then we'll talk to a plant expert who knows there's no such thing as polite botany. My name is Angela Overy,
1: and I am the author of
4: Sex in Your Garden.
1: All that plus a scatological nerd confession on this week's NerdX. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha
4: Bobita. Elizabeth Gilbert is probably best known for her memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, but she's also written several novels.
1: And she's responsible for the movie Coyote Ugly, which I love. (laughs) No, I really, I'm not kidding. I love that movie. Really? Yes. She's also done a couple of TED Talks, both about navigating the world as a creative thinker. Eat, Pray, Love sold
4: more than 10 million copies and became a giant movie. So what comes next for a writer after that kind
1: of success? Other things like corgis. And fairies. In old-timey botany.
3: My parents did this big trick on us when we were kids, which was that we always had chores and work and stuff that we had to do around the property and around the farm. And idleness was not permitted. So if you were ever caught being idle, you were immediately put to work. But if you were reading, for some reason, that was a shield that they respected. I think they just had a lot of regard for reading themselves, and they wanted us to grip to be readers. And so I think from an early age, I just realized that if I had a book in my hands, it was less likely that I would be asked to go out and move the wood pile or something. And um, and I always felt like learning that I got one over on them, but now I'm realizing that, you know, they totally got one over on me because they taught me how to find refuge in reading. And then I became a reader and a writer almost by default.
4: I love that reversal of trickery. That's beautiful. I know. Busted.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So growing up on a small Christmas tree farm, Was there more or less magic associated with Christmas as a child? Did it take some of the wonder out of it, knowing that it was the family business?
3: You know what? It didn't really, because it was a pretty cool time of the year. If anything, it certainly wasn't glamorous or fun to do the work of Christmas tree growing or fertilizing or seedling moving or any of the stuff that had to be done throughout the year or mowing, any of that stuff, which is horrible. But selling Christmas trees was something that I always liked doing. It's a little bit like selling ice cream. People are always happy to buy it. (laughs) They're in a good mood when they come, so you kind of get to see people at their best. I have really only happy memories of that time of year. That said, we always had a really crap Christmas tree because my dad was not about to waste a perfectly good Christmas tree on his own (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we always, like, the cobbler's children have their shoes. Like, we always at the lamest, saddest Christmas trees. And I think after a while, we just didn't even have them anymore because it was, like, not even worth it.
1: Oh, that's funny. I guess that's true that you're a part of a important family memory for lots of people throughout your community if you're selling them their Christmas tree.
3: Yeah, it's pretty cool. And my parents took that, especially my mom, took that really seriously. Like, we gave away hot chocolate and donuts for the kids. And I still meet people who came for years to our farm. And... They remember petting the baby goats and chasing the chickens around and having donuts and having this really epic childhood memory. So I think all of my childhood Christmases sort of blur together and maybe just bleed into childhood Christmases of all the people who came to our house. I really liked being on that part of it. I thought that part of it was really cool. I didn't like any of the rest of it for the rest of the year, but that part of it was kind of great.
4: That's really funny. Tricia was convinced that you would be totally jaded about it. And I was like, no, I bet it made it even better.
3: It was. Wonderful. The name of our farm was Bees, Fleas, and Trees because we had <laughs> bees and we had goats. I guess that's where the fleas came from. And of course, we had trees. And my dad handmade a great epic craft of his life was to hand make that sign that he was very proud of that hung outside of our house all year. So getting off the bus in front of the half the advertised fleas was sort of never cool, <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs>
3: but it built character, I guess <laughs> I don't know if anyone needs that much character, but it built it.
1: I'm imagining a fateful day when the goats knocked over the bees and then they swarmed the trees and it could have just gone very badly, I guess. <laughs> Actually,
3: whenever the goats cut out, they just went straight to the blueberries.
1: <laughs> Clever goats.
3: <laughs> Anyone who has goats knows. They're like, oh, blueberry bushes, done. I'll eat those in five minutes. Now you won't have any. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's hilarious. What was it, especially, I'm curious about The Wizard of Oz, that made you like it so much?
3: We lived a couple miles from the library, and we spent a lot of time at the library, so books were not unfamiliar to me. But what I didn't have growing up were any books that rivaled the beauty of the set of Wizard of Oz books that we had inherited from My grandmother, they had been hers when she was a child. My father had read the same ones when he was a child. They got passed down to us. They were just these beautiful 1920s Art Deco hardcovers with these illustrations of these amazing nymphs and goddesses and creatures. And I can still remember the plate of the tiger and TikTok and Bellina the Hen. They were just so vivid that I think I would have loved them just for the physicality of the books, even if I hadn't loved them for the story. But I also loved them for the story. And that I've interpreted in recent years to be because the character, Dorothy Gale, was so exciting to me because she was, I can see now, she was the perfect female embodiment of the Joseph Campbell description of the hero in the hero's journey. Everything that happens in the traditional mythological hero's journey usually happens to men, but it happened to this little girl. And she was incredibly brave. And I've said over the years that I think that most of us, are either Dorothy's or were Alice's. (laughs) And I never related to Alice. I always found her world really chaotic and scary. And now that I look back on her, I'm like, oh, she was a little girl on roofies who was concocted by a pedophile. Of course she freaked me out, right? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know. Whereas, uh, whereas L. Frank Baum, who wrote Dorothy, was a feminist before that word even existed for men, and his wife was a suffragette, and his mother was a suffragette. And I think you just see it in that story that she was a really powerful and mighty little girl who, even though supernatural things like tornadoes and monsters happened to her, she always had a sense of her own agency, which I think is missing from Alice.
4: And she brought out the best in everyone she dealt with. She made everybody get along. <laughs> Have you ever um, read Salman Rushdie's essay about The Wizard of Oz?
3: About no. the movie, It's really interesting and really beautiful. And he really related to that story when he was a kid growing up in India. As an adult, he challenged the ending, which is that there's no place like home and all she wants is to return to Kansas. And he really challenged how believable that was because it was like who would ever want to leave Oz and go back to the farm? Nobody wants to go back to the farm. (laughs) And I always thought that was a really interesting perspective although I guess L. Frank Baum solved that by having Dorothy have repeated adventures that went on after she got back to the farm so
4: she didn't really have to stay on the farm. Exactly. It's like Narnia, you know? Because if you're there all the time then you get sick of it, right?
3: Right. You have to have that threshold that portal to be able to go back and forth between two worlds which is kind of the coolest thing of all.
4: Still to come, more with Elizabeth Gilbert and a modern-day expert about just how impolite botany can be. You're
1: listening to Nerdette.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer, Sundays, exclusively on Macs. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: I'm Greta Johnson here with Tricia Bobita, and we're talking to author Elizabeth Gilbert.
1: I'm grateful for many things about your work, but most recently and most specifically, it's the phrase polite botany.
3: (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? I almost called the novel that. That was the runner-up title. I love those words.
1: (laughs) So we're talking about your most recent novel, The Signature of All Things, and polite botany is not something you made up. This is actually what they called females in the field of botany at the time?
3: Yep. It's a really simple definition. There were two kinds of botany that were practiced in the 19th century. One was called botany, and that's what men did. And the other was called polite botany, and that's what ladies did. And other than that, there was no difference whatsoever. I guess it was just a way to make sure that women didn't start thinking that they had too much importance, <laughs> um, to make sure that it remained a hobby. And it was considered a good hobby for women because it, I don't know, kept them out of the gin halls. I guess. <laughs> I don't know, but they definitely didn't want them getting too close to the ivory towers of science
1: on that. Tell us a little about how you researched this book. It's set in the 19th century, you're talking about Alma, your protagonist, as a botanist and a bit of a perfectionist, which we might talk a little bit about later. But how did you create this world?
3: I spent about three years doing research for the book because I was taking on more than I had ever taken on before. I know myself well enough to know that I'm not going to have any confidence about something unless I can very rigorously prepare for it. So I spent a lot of time revisiting old novels that I've loved and reading my Henry James again and my Jane Austen and my George Eliot to try to put myself in that head of telling a novel in that style, and then just doing an enormous amount of research on 18th and 19th century botanical exploration, and missionaries, and abolition, and the origins of pharmacy in the United States and Europe, and whaling ships, and I don't know, everything else that needed to be in there, transcendentalism. And none of this was a chore, because I'm such a geek. There's nothing that could make me possibly happier than to have to spend three years in various libraries all over the world trying to put together this story. Alma is my heroine. She grew out of all of that research and particularly out of me researching the great polite botanists of that era and reading their letters and their journals and and their scientific research and coordinating that all together into a new person, somebody who didn't actually exist, but I like to think could
4: have. I think my favorite thing about this phrase, polite botany, is that the term polite, is it means that you're talking about things that aren't necessarily inappropriate. But my mother, who was a biology major, God, I I really do bring my mother up in every episode, don't I, Tricia? (laughs) She says she always loved biology so much because it's all about sex. And I think botany, too, right? I mean, you're propagating the species. That's the whole point of all of it. So to call it polite, I just think is so funny that way.
3: Yeah, because it isn't. (laughs) flowers especially, which are seen as so feminine, you know, you don't have to look at very many Georgia O'Keeffe paintings to get the point about what a flower is. Less in the 18th century, the Age of Enlightenment, I think, was way more sexually open than what followed it. The Victorian Age got really closeted again, and there was a concern that perhaps, you know, is there any way to teach taxonomy that we don't have to let the ladies know what we're actually talking about here. I'd like to think that maybe for a lot of those women... Their passion for flowers was a way to release some of that sublimated erotic energy.
4: One thing you've said that I just love and have to ask you about is that chiclet is the polite botany of our time.
3: Yeah, you can make the case for that. We have divided the world of literature into two categories, and that is literature, which men practice, and chiclet, which women do, which you might as well just call polite literature. (laughs) like the only way to combat it is the same way that women in the 19th century combated the label of polite botany, which is to just do better botany, to just not stop making the work that is important to you and not stop doing the research that's important to you and not stop publishing. Who was it who famously said, it ain't what they call you, it's what you answer to? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, You're going to get called all kinds of stuff, but I only answer
1: to writer. A lot of what we do here at Nerdette is talk to authors. We touched on this just for a moment with Tom Parada. And he mentioned that after college, he went and worked as a garbage man because he felt like he needed to live some life before he would have anything to write about and Mm -hmm. that he needed to go off on some adventures. And I know that that's part of your story as well, is that you've gone out and sought out experiences hoping to find stories. But I wonder how you balance that in a long period of time over the course of your life. Are there things that you tell yourself Nothing about this vacation will become a story, so that it's just for you, or are you always seeking the story in the experience?
3: That's such a good question. Okay, I've never said that to myself, but other people have said it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about this family reunion is going in a book. There are people who will look up and just give you a stern warning finger that's just like, mm mm this doesn't get put in the notebook. And I do think that you have to respect that as much as you can. I don't know that you're ever really off duty, but I do think there are times when you're more on duty than other times. I'm always sort of on low alert for anything that might be a story or might be worth doing. But then there are times when I have deliberately gone out in the world in search of a story in a really active way, rather than passively waiting for one to come to me. And felt really important for me to do when I was in my 20s. That's pretty much what I spent my 20s doing. I mean, I knew the adage that you have to write what you know, and I also knew that I didn't really know anything. You know, I hadn't lived enough. I hadn't heard enough different kinds of voices. I hadn't been around uh, big enough mixed people. I really needed to go out there and roll around in it and collect some narrative.
4: Go out there and roll around in it. I love that. What I really want to talk to you about, Liz, is corgis. Corgis? Corgis. Yes. Corgis. <laughs> Because I have a corgi, uh-huh. and so I'm one of those crazy corgi obsessed people. <laughs> and referring to my TED talk,
3: when I said that I could have quit writing and just spent the rest of my life raising corgis. Yeah, <laughs>
4: yep, yep. That's exactly what we're referring to. Yeah, why corgis? Why for you corgis? Um, that is really funny. I have never had anybody draw attention to that corgi line. <laughs> I think
3: originally in the line when I wrote that speech, I had said I could just raise dogs. But, you know, specificity is the core of narrative. It just doesn't have the same ring to just say, I could just raise dogs. And then I kind of had to decide what the funniest possible sounding dog would be. And I hope it's not offensive that I came up with corgis because not only are they kind of funny to look at, but the word itself is
1: amusing. Oh, totally. There is no doubt that the corgi is the most whimsical of dog breeds.
4: (laughs) The Wikipedia article about the corgi, the second line of its mythical origin is that fairy warriors preferred to ride on corgis. (gasps)
1: That's right. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I think we've actually struck on something there, Greta, which is that If fairies and muses need a way to get around so that they can get to Liz, then why not buy Corky? Why not travel by Corky?
3: Hey. Oh, my God. (laughs) You just took a string and tied both of my TED Talks together.
1: (laughs) I'm so excited. So the third TED Talk we've decided will be only about fairies and Corky. Clearly.
3: Clearly. Done and done. I'll be calling them today to um, (laughs) make my pitch. I can't see why they would ever refuse that. 18 minutes, please. 18 minutes on the main stage.
1: For that subject. Let's go. <laughs> Liz Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette Podcast. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. Her newest book is The Signature of All Things, all about a polite botanist. This is Nerdette. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita, here with Greta Johnson. If you're not convinced yet that there's nothing polite about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the pollen, well, we called an expert. Angela Overy
4: is a botanical illustrator with the Denver Botanic Gardens. She wrote the book Sex in Your Garden.
2: My name, Overy, helps. I married an ovary and I find it quite useful.
4: (laughs) I was really hoping before I talked to you that it was actually pronounced ovary, so that's hilarious. Give me the basic birds and the bees, or I guess flowers and bees talk here. What is it about the garden that is so, in fact, sexually rampant?
2: Well, the whole point of flowers on a plant is that the flowers are the sexual organ of the plant. That's how most of them reproduce. And they have male parts, female parts, which need to connect in order to produce seed so the flower can continue over the generation. So that is the basic. It's not much different from humans or any mammals in
4: fact. As you mentioned in the book, often these organs even are not too dissimilar from human sexual organs, right? No.
2: The female part has what is usually a moist receptive area to accept the male genes. And then there is the male part will grow a tube down into the seed, which are waiting in an ovary. And then when they're fertilized, the ovary gets fatter, just like it was pregnant. And the seeds ripen inside the ovary before they're dispersed. So you can see there's a lot of similarities.
4: What are some other particularly interesting examples of the illicit in the garden?
2: There are all sorts of plants like orchids that go in for what you might call pseudo-copulation, which they attract male bees that think they're a female, and they try and mate with the orchid. And at that time, they're transferring pollen from one orchid to another. So they're doing the orchid some good, but they're also thinking that they're doing some mating, which is really a cheap trick to play on the poor bee. But they don't seem to mind. They keep on doing it. And
4: good for the male bees. (laughs) How do people respond when you tell them about this book that you've written?
2: i taught botanical illustration for many years. I had a young doctor who was learning how to look into flowers, and I explained to him about the male and female parts that he was drawing. And he looked at me as if to say, you know, lady, where are you coming from? And I realized that he'd never learned this stuff. So I thought, well, if he doesn't know, and he's had a good education, everybody needs So some people are just amazed, some are shocked, some are appalled. So the book has been banned in a couple of places from libraries. People find the title very shocking. But my thought is is that if it's funny and it gets your attention, then you're more likely to remember what is in this book. So that's what I was trying to do, to attract attention, just like a bright flower.
4: Well, I have to say, I think it worked because when Trisha, the co-host, and I were talking about what segment to pair with Liz Gilbert talking about botany and that idea of polite botany, at first we were thinking, well, maybe we just need to talk to like a modern day botanist about the sort of work that she does. And then I thought, you know, there's that book called Sex in Your Garden. We should talk to that lady. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm very glad you did. Because I'm passionate about this subject, because if you understand the tremendous similarity between plants and mammals and what we are doing, how we all compete and strive in order to live on this earth, and if you learn about that, then you have more empathy with them. And the young people are going to be the voters of tomorrow who are going to decide how we're going to survive on this planet. If everybody who is listening could go out and watch a bee or a fly or a butterfly for just a few minutes, I think it would make them very happy and have a little bit more understanding about what we're
4: all
5: doing.
2: And you can see them competing just like we're competing in our homes and offices every day.
4: Angela, that's incredible because another thing we do with our guests who we interview on the show is we ask them to assign our listeners homework. And so it's perfect. You just did. I didn't even have to ask you for it. And you did.
2: (laughs) That's what I'd like everybody to do as soon as possible.
4: All right. I think that's wonderful.
0: I've given you sunshine. I've given you dirt. You've given me nothing but heartache and hurt. I'm begging you sweetly. I'm down on my knees. Oh, please grow
4: for me. Thanks to Angela. Her book is Sex in Your Garden. If your mother is anything like mine, you should definitely go get her this book. (laughs) She
1: will love it. And here's a little more homework from Elizabeth Gilbert. I would like to give everybody the homework, if
3: they have not already read it, to read a really wonderful, whimsical, yet serious, emotional, fantastic book called The Summer Book by Tove Jansen. and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. She is of Scandinavian descent. She also wrote The Moomins. You know those books for children? But The Summer Book is not that. The Summer Book is a thinly disguised memoirish novel about a child spending her summers on this remote island in the Gulf of Finland with her incredible grandmother, and it is so terrific and so wonderful. It has mosses in it, too, which makes me happy, but mostly it just has clear-eyed nostalgia for what it actually really is to be a child. Not in any unduly fanciful way, but in a very feet-on-the-ground way. This is somebody who clearly remembered exactly what it was like to be a child and exactly what Summer felt like. It's a fantastic
4: summer book to read. Now it's time to hear from you.
1: Time for Nerd Confessions. Nerd Confessions. This one is an in-person delivery of a Nerd Confession. Our pal Eiley, who used to work here with me at WBEZ in Chicago, has taken off and is doing a much more adventurous job than sitting in a studio. She's going to be leading biking tours through the wilderness.
5: (laughs) And she's well-suited to this job, as you'll hear from her nerd confession. I really am into animal scat. Do you know what scat is? (laughs) No. Scat is animal feces. (laughs) You can identify animals buy their scat, and so it makes you seem like not so much of a creeper when you talk about it like scat, like you're a scientist, because otherwise you're just into poop. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten a scat bandana for Yellowstone, where I was leading trips, and it's actually kind of embarrassing because it says Junior Ranger on it, and then it has pictures of all kinds of poop on it. But the Junior Ranger did not deter me from my love for feces. That's so my confession. When
1: I hear scat initially, I think,
5: like, Right? Well, it's great to be able to be like, Oh, scat! That's great. I'm going to use that. Yeah, I'm trying to get that to pick up. The Oh, scat! I'll leave you guys with this one trick that's my favorite. Okay. In leading trips in Yellowstone, there's this trick that they show us for kids where you get a cliff bar, because the cliff bar looks kind of like poop. And you stash it on the trail ahead of time, mm-hmm. and then you stumble upon it. And you point it out, and you say, Oh my gosh, this is really exciting. Usually we don't come across this, but this looks to me like it's actually fresh cub poop. I think there's a cub in the area. <laughs> and there's really only one way to tell if it is indeed a cub, which would be a really big deal because the cubs eat more berries, so you have to taste it. <laughs> And then you eat the cliff bar, and everyone thinks you're eating poop, and it's really fun.
1: That's the like, highlight of my summer. Check
5: the bandana. I'm the expert. Well, yeah, because I'll play up my affection for scat <laughs> throughout the trip, so they don't seem that thrown off when that happens. But yeah, I'm the poop eater.
4: Call us at 312 600 5638 to tell us about when you are at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags are welcome. That's 312-600-5638. You can also call to suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile. Or just say hi. We really like voicemails. You can find us at nerdatpodcast.com.
1: While you're there, sign up for our email newsletter. It's on the left side of the homepage. You can also talk with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast, like us on Facebook. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dessau, Iris Lynn, and Patrick Burns.
4: Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org.
1: Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.
4: There are some stars, and write an iTunes review if you're feeling generous.
1: Like the awesome Apacana did. We love that you made a spreadsheet of all the homework. Gold star. Definite gold star. All of the gold stars. If you're a nerd who owns a business or works for one that wants to get your message heard by Nerd Out listeners, you can sponsor this show. Email us, nerdettpodcast at gmail.com to find out how to underwrite this show. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen, Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series.